Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 17, The Squire of Gothos. Hello, Trekkies and non-Trekkies alike. You have the great fortune of joining us yet again for Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I am Ken Ray, and I'm not doing another episode in rhyming verse or floral language. For you, then, I shall give it a rest. Mission Log is the show where we pick apart every episode of Star Trek in order and try to determine what works, how it works, and how we can make it work in real life. What's the point? What's the philosophy? And does it have relevance today? You almost did it again, didn't you? Almost. (laughs) This week, we're looking at The Squire of Gothos, a tale of a rambunctious youth who happens to have the powers of a god. Excellent. I loved it back when it was called Charlie X. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Yeah. 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 (laughs) There are some similarities, but you know what? I'm going to preemptively kind of forgive them because I think this is sort of an evergreen story in a way. You know, maybe it's too close, too soon. You know, I mean, it's it's been a while since we saw Charlie X. I guess, what are we on now? Episode 16, 17, Charlie X? 17, yeah. Charlie X was episode... Three. Three. Yeah. So (laughs) it's been a few weeks and it's not exactly the same because Charlie X was a human. And um, we're not 100% certain what the Squire of Gothos actually is. Right. Now, I'm going to do something that we always say that we don't do or that we try not to do. Okay. You cannot watch the Squire of Gothos without thinking of Q. Unless you've never heard of Q. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you've watched Star Trek and you've watched Star Trek The Next Generation, or if you've watched Next Gen, and then you suddenly, for the first time ever, see the Squire of Gothos, yeah. I mean, the, the, the similarities between Trelane, uh, the character in the Squire of Gothos, and uh, and Q are just um, insurmountable. Well, I think there's one big difference. And I have to say, you know, I haven't read uh, Q Squared. And that, that was a Star Trek novel from 1994 that tried to kind of link the two, link the character Trelane, the Squire of Gothos, with Q. But uh, maybe I'll have to go back and read that just to satisfy my own curiosity. We learn something about Trelane that what he's doing is partly machine-based. We don't know enough about the Q to know what they're doing. Um, but to me, that was kind of the big difference, I thought. But hey, I, I'm curious to find out how the novels have worked these characters together. You know, I haven't read many Star Trek novels, but um, I do. I, the ones that I have read, I like the ones that Peter David writes. So I've, I kinda, mm-hmm. I've kind of got a little faith in that. Now I'm thinking I might have to go back and read that one as well. Cool, cool. Well, yeah, the, and there ends our uh, getting totally off the timeline. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, <laughs> but it, but it was just so obvious, like you said. We we had, we had to mention it. Um, here's a little more trivia before we get into the meat of the episode. Uh, William Campbell who turns in a tremendous performance here as Trelane, went on to do a lot of other Star Trek. He played Klingons. He he did all kinds of stuff, not only in the original series, but in the later series, and even in video games doing the voices for some later Trek characters. I thought that was really cool. But I have to mention this. I don't know if you know me well enough, Ken, to know that I love bad movies. Um, I love exploitation movies. And he was in an exploitation movie 
from 1971 called Pretty Maids All in a Row. Um, it was directed by Roger Vadim. It's actually a studio picture. Uh, it, I believe it was Universal, and it had it had a decent cast. It had William Campbell. It had uh, Rock Hudson. It had Angie Dickinson. But it was basically an exploitation movie, the kind of which would never get made today because it was about a teacher sleeping with his students. Uh, yeah. And like, uh, and like a fun, go get em, raunchy sex comedy kind of way, not an ooh, creepy, this is bad kind of way. I'm sorry, high school or college teacher? High school. Oh, dear. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah, you're right. That probably wouldn't fly. Um, no, wait, 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 wait. I just checked with uh, the planet that would not fly today. No, no, no. But here is the next thing to blow your mind. Okay. The script, the script for that movie was written by Gene Roddenberry. Uh, we he did not write the story. Okay. 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 It was an adaptation, but he wrote the script. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I know. Forgive me. I'm still dealing. Yeah, I know. Uh, okay. I know, but- so we'll bring it back to Star Trek, though. Um, well, Campbell, no, it, it went immediately back to Star Trek in my head. This does not mean that we have to go back and reconsider Miri, does it? No. Oh, oh, oh no. no okay. We will never reconsider Miri. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so Campbell was close friends with a lot of people from production on Star Trek, especially Gene Kuhn, who was one of the producers. Um, he played poker regularly with Gene Kuhn, uh, Gene and Majel Roddenberry, uh, and James Doohan in particular. And he was very close personal friends with Gene Kuhn until Kuhn died. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he knew Gene Kuhn. He knew his wife. Actually, he was married twice uh, during that period. Um, but he, he's kind of Star Trek family, as it were. I got to say, in, in, um, in looking up a little bit about him myself uh, before recording this show, I was really disappointed to find out that he, uh, that he, that he died in 2011. Yeah. Uh, that William Campbell did because just, I mean, just this guy's voice. I love this guy's voice. And, you know, if, if he did books on tape, I'd listen to him. And if he did phone books on tape, I'd listen to him. I mean, they're just, they're really fantastic. And if he were still around, I would hire him to, uh, to record my answering machine message. The only problem yes. is I would also have to go out and buy an answering machine. Right. right. <laughs> um, yeah, God, he's so good. And I'm not a big gamer, but I'm intrigued by the fact that he did voices for some of the games. Well, I'm also uh, curious about one of the games that he did the voice for. He was uh, the voice of Trelane. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Which game was that and what's that all about? I don't know, but I'm intrigued. Yeah, me too. Um, and by the way, before we get into the story here, it is interesting to note that the timeline is kind of weird with this episode. Um, Trelane's fantasy life is centered around what looks like 17th century Earth, I'm going to say, around there, 17th, maybe early to mid 18th century. Uh, but there is a line where Kirk, I believe, says that it looks like 900 years ago. No, you're right. The castle is old. The castle could be from 900 years ago, but then inside there's a bust of Napoleon. There's yeah. a uh, there's a globe of the Earth, which mm. I don't know how many of those there would have been 900 years in the past. Right. Um. Yeah. Th- there's there there are lots of mix-ups as far as the uh, as far as the timeline goes. But it's okay. We'll just go on with the story. Military genius, misguided lunatic, let's get to know this Trelane. Prologue. The Enterprise is flying around looking for 
stuff, and they find an uninhabitable planet. Suddenly, Mr. Sulu disappears. Then Captain Kirk, this is no good. We better get to the opening credits fast. Act 1. Spock is now in control, and there's no sign of the captain or Sulu. Time to make a decision about going down to the planet where surely Kirk and Sulu could not be alive. Out of nowhere, a heavily calligraphied greeting shows up on one of the bridge monitors. Now assuming that the planet is inhabited, a landing party is sent down to investigate. McCoy is joined by DeSalle and Jaeger. They find the atmosphere to be perfectly okay, but there's no communication back to the ship. Now they find a stone manor house right out of the 18th century. Inside, they find the salt vampire from the man trap, as well as Kirk and Sulu in some kind of suspended animation. Cue the harpsichord music, and now we get to meet Trelane. He is quite the dandy and quite the host. He has released Kirk and Sulu from their state, and he explains that he's been studying Earth, only as Earth from hundreds of years ago. He's brought the Enterprise crew here in order to learn about humanity's warring history. He's fascinated by the phaser, and hey, aren't we all? And he wants to demonstrate his power. Trelane's people can manipulate matter in amazing ways, including making this uninhabitable planet a comfortable home. When Kirk protests that he is ready to leave, Trelane transports him to an outside area as a brief punishment. Act 2. Spock and Scotty find the area where the landing party are likely being held. On the planet, McCoy tells Kirk that he doesn't read Trelane as a life form at all, at least not as they know it. Out of nowhere, a communicator beeps and the transporter starts. Spock has cracked through to find all life forms and beam them back up. The Enterprise crew is ready to get out of there, but who shows up on the bridge? It's Trelane again. He's got words for Spock, and now he whisks everyone away down to the planet's surface again. Seems like Trelane just wants to have a dinner party, and he really, really wants to be introduced to the women. Spock, Kirk, and McCoy are putting together a hypothesis about Trelane. That he's been observing Earth, but he doesn't understand it. Food has no taste. Fire has no heat. They assume he's using a machine to replicate matter out of energy. Maybe that machine is behind the huge mirror that Trelane stays near. Kirk hatches a plan to push Trelane's buttons. It starts with a slap, and Trelane takes the bait. Kirk is challenged to a duel. Act 3. The duel is ready to start. Trelane fires a warning shot in the air, but Kirk takes aim at the mirror. Machinery breaks down, sparks fly, and the whole room goes haywire. Communications are back, and Trelane is not happy about this one bit and vows his wrath. Kirk is just ready to get everyone out of there. Back on the bridge, he gives the order to really step on the gas. But wait, the planet itself is following them and jumping in the way. No luck. They can't outrun the planet. Kirk decides to beam down. On the surface, he finds a courtroom with Trelane in full-on judge garb. The judgment is already decided. Kirk has offended and been insubordinate to Trelane's wishes. The sentence is death. Act 4. Kirk pulls another bluff, though. Instead of hanging, wouldn't Trelane be happier with a challenging hunt with Kirk as the prize? Now we're back outside, and Trelane and Kirk go at it with swords and fists. Well, Kirk is mostly unarmed and really just trying to fend off Trelane. When he's finally cornered, Kirk refuses to accept Trelane's victory and breaks his sword. Then he slaps Trelane right on his face. Out of nowhere, a couple of glowing entities appear in the sky, calling their misbehaving son, Trelane, back home. They admonish him for being cruel and not taking care of his pets. 
Back on board, Kirk explains to Spock that Trelane should more accurately be entered into the log as a misbehaving child rather than a powerful enemy. Then there's a little good-natured ribbing about what surely was Spock's own misspent youth. Sad about the very last salt monster, huh? I know. <laughs> you didn't know. mention. You didn't mention it, and I understand because it's not that huge a deal. But in uh, maybe in trying to study the, the humans, trying to figure them out, Trelane uh, takes a phaser from one of them, figures mm-hmm. it out very fast. Oh, I see. This part stuns. This part kills. This part stuns. This part kills. And he takes a, and he you know, disintegrates um, the last salt monster, I mean, or the next to the last salt monster. Well, no, the last salt monster, right? Because oh, right, the next to the last was on board the Enterprise. Yeah, that was Nancy yeah. Crater, or you know, yeah. pretending to be Nancy Crater, back all the way back at the beginning in the Man Trap. Right. And right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> after all that worrying we did. Yeah. Now we're only assuming that it was alive, but we can make that assumption fairly safely based on the fact that um, Kirk and Sulu were alive when they were sort of in the suspended animation on display in Trelane's castle. Right. So maybe this salt monster was actually already dead and we don't have to mourn for it. But my immediate thought was my immediate thought was actually, hey, if Kirk and Sulu were alive, then that means a salt. Mo- oh, no, no. no more. No Too more. Too bad about that. But that is a funny moment when they're walking <laughs> down the stairs. And McCoy, McCoy just gives it a look. Yeah. Hey, it's you my know. old girlfriend. Right. 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 <laughs> that is kind of so, amusing. Yeah. 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 I, I love a little in joke that, that we get in there. So, um, by the way, um, oh, snap. Trelane calls Uhura a Nubian prize, and she is having none of that. She is not pleased, but she doesn't smack him. No, she doesn't. It's interesting. I mean, this does uh, speak to uh, Trelane's thought that we're about 500, 600 years further back in history than we actually are by the time he meets the crew of the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. He actually says to Kirk um, uh, that Uhura was no doubt won on one of his conquests. Right, right. Which, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's woefully ignorant. Oh, no, he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then but then he refers to Yeoman Ross, who mm-hmm. has also beamed down because, like I said, Trelane is really interested in meeting these women. Um, and he is sort of reciting this poetry to her as if she is Helen of Troy. You know? right. So, again, he, he's just completely off on his conception of, of Earth. And then he puts her in a princess outfit. Um, the second princess outfit we've seen now since um, Shore Leave. Yes. One of the first mm-hmm. ones since Shore Leave. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The place isn't lousy with princesses now. Oh, well, yeah. It's it might like, be. It's not like Star Trek was bought by Disney. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Sorry. So That's very topical. So, That's very topical and does not belong in this show. I do apologize. Right. Uh, one of the things that really amuses me about this episode is that when we have the big reveal that Trelane is a child, mm-hmm. it, it's sort of like this 50s, 60s TV version of a child. It's like if you ever watched Leave it to Beaver or Dennis the Menace. Um, and then even at the end when Kirk is making fun of Spock, he's saying, what did you do? You know, pull on a girl's curls, you know, pull on her hair. It, and I just feel like that Part of it seems very dated. When when Trelane is begging to his parents, it's like, oh, shucks, Ma, mm-hmm. I was just having fun. And 
you know, today when you depict a kid who's out of hand, it's usually in a horror movie. <laughs> and it's usually it's usually something really dark and really terrible. But but this is a very um it's a very comic-y way of depicting his childishness. Um but at the same time he plays it brilliantly. You yeah. kind of buy it. Not at the very 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 end. And mm-hmm. the, the last 30 seconds that he has on screen, you kind of wish it was a little bit different. Although I was actually discussing this, my, my, um, my, my uh, fiance mm-hmm. and I were watching at the end of the episode. She came in just as it was ending and she's like, that's unbelievable. I mean, like literally like, yeah, I don't believe that. I don't buy that. Mm. Um, I think it's because, you know, we're 40 something years after at yeah. this point as we record this. And, you know, I mean, this idea that the that the uber intelligent thing is actually a child or is actually a kid, that humanity has become a plaything to an alien that's nothing more than a child itself. I think now that's been done. But, you know, go back to 1966 when this episode aired. And you've you've actually I mean, to me, that it seems like it might be a little bit more of a, uh, oh, wow, you know, kind of moment Mm -hmm. uh, than it Mm -hmm. is today. We've seen a lot more. I mean, there's just more entertainment now. And, you know, so many stories have been done and redone. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, I like the fact that when you go back and watch it a second time, you know, within a few hours, getting ready to do a podcast about it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, as everyone does. Yeah, yeah, totally. We've all got podcasts about this show. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, This episode, I mean. Um, You sort of see some of the childishness, childishness the second time. Oh, yeah. In yeah. a way that you don't. At first, he just sort of seems, you know, kind of frenetic and kind of, you know, and easily distracted. But once you know he's a child, then the second time you watch it or the next time you watch it, however many times you have, I mean, you'll, you'll see now, you know, he's a kid. Right. All the way through it. And yet it really is fun. And you don't see that in the first five minutes the first time you watch it. You don't even see it in the first half the first time you watch it. You just think he's mad. Mm-hmm. You, you don't realize mm-hmm. he's a child. I mean, the fact that right. he runs up to killing Without actually killing, you know, never mind about the salt vampire. Uh, <laughs> right. that, that kind of right. indicates that, you know, okay, maybe this is a child, you know, that, that he's all, you know, bluff and bluster. But, you know, then he gets right up to the moment where he's going to do something bad. And eh, this game's boring. Let's play a different game, you yeah. know, in and, and yeah. sort of a childish way. Um, I know I said I wasn't going to do any flowery speak anymore. Oh, do it. Do well, it. The one thing that this reminds me of again, and I think we we need to come up with an acronym an, an acronym for this. Um, there are more things in heaven and earth ratio than are dreamt of in your philosophy. How many pangalactic super beings are we going to come across and still not get answers about them? If we try really quickly right now, we've got. Um, uh, well, you got the Telosians, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was it that uh, took care of Charlie X? And by took care of, I mean took care of. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I, I can't remember their their names at this uh-huh. point, or, or the name of that race at this point. Um, you got the caretakers on the shore leave planet. Yep. And I feel like I'm probably missing somebody. In yeah, just the, the episodes that we've already yeah. seen. I mean, oh, Baylock. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you've got, I yeah. mean, just episode after episode of like, you know, uh, what the heck are you? Ah, you wouldn't understand. All right, right. well, then I'm going to get back in my ship and leave. You right. cool with that? Uh, Kirk actually asks mom and dad at the end of it, so who are you and, and what's the deal? And they're like, eh, get back to your ship. We'll leave life support on long enough for you to leave now. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, there's – once again, we're sort of being like, you know, little brain, listen, you wouldn't get it. Yeah. 
You know, that seems to be sort of the standard answer in a way that I would imagine would even enrage Vulcans at some point. (laughs) Growing up is tough, especially when you have almost limitless power and no real guidance. So what can we learn from our time with Trelane? So it's kind of hard. I don't know. As we move to the to the morals, the messages, the meanings of the show, it's it's kind of hard to know exactly where to start. So much of of what we come across in Star Trek is either informed by the view of uh, you know the Enterprise crew, or it's informed by the view of a of a, a more evolved or more intelligent uh, race being or species. Um. Or it's informed sometimes by like a like a like a like a like a like a, sister, like a, a disastrous situation or a very dangerous situation. Um, this episode is informed by a child. Yeah, I don't know if he's five. I don't know if he's eight. I don't know how old he is, but everything that he's into. Um, and this is even different than than when we talked about shore leave. How there's nothing sexual in shore leave, um, probably because it was television in the 1960s, or there's very mm-hmm. little sexual in, in it because it's television in the 1960s. Whereas there's lots of violence. This is perfect for an eight-year-old boy. He kind of likes the girls. He kind of like, oh, girls. I kind of like girls. But really what I want to talk about is killing. Yeah. I want to talk about war, and I want to talk about marching under banners, and I want to, you know, that whole thing. Um, so so this this view, his view, this child's view, is very much a view that's informed almost by, like, you know, if he'd been watching 500 years later, he would have been all about G.I. Joe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that tells us something about the time at which this episode was made. You know, again, you can't avoid this. Star Trek was made during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Trelane's idea of war is romance. It's adventure. It's action. And here you have the evolved humans who are basically trying to stop him and say, no, 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 no. No, what what you're talking about has consequence. <laughs> you know, there are real lives at stake, real people at stake here, um, and he's just hearing none of it at all. And I can't help but think of um, this idea that here we came out of World War II, which was um, also very documented, but also heavily propagandized. And now here we're in the Vietnam era where the war is in the living room every night. Mm -hmm. And there's a big, big contrast between what we thought war was and, and what we were fighting for in World War II and then what we see is happening in Vietnam. Um, And so I think that really helps to inform, um, that aspect of his character and kind of the, the looking glass that we're using to, to see him and the way that he's seeing earth. And we're trying to say, no, that that's not what war is. Yeah. And you kind of got to love, you kind of got to love the fact that a show, I mean, while this episode was not written by Gene Roddenberry, that a show created by a guy who was a bomber pilot in world war two, mm-hmm. he is willing not only to say, look, war's not cool. Yeah. Um, but he's also willing to say, even while we're in one, you know what? In the 23rd century, humanity's not turned on by this. Yeah. This is not, I mean, yeah, you know, we'll fight if we have to. And that was kind right. of an interesting. That wasn't actually just, uh, it's not just a humanity thing. There's an interesting little, 
uh, kind of getting his uh, kind of getting his dander up a bit when uh, when Trelane uh, bobs himself onto the bridge of the Enterprise, wants to know who this Mister Spock is that ruined all of his fun, <laughs> right? right? And Spock's there, and he says, you know, that that that'd be me, pal. And Trelane says, yeah, you're not really human though. You're not into the whole fighting thing, are you? And Spock's like, eh, you know, we've mm-hmm. been known to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so he's sort of backing him off a tiny bit like yeah you know what generally speaking not but i can make an exception for you pal you yeah. know so i mean there's it's not i mean the, the message is not yeah we're always guns blazing always ready for a fight um i mean we've not gone so pacifist at this point that we don't know what to do when somebody like a trillane shows up but at the same time it's not i mean it's not it's not pretty it's not a yeah. fun thing yeah. at this point Right. Well, and I, what I really like here is that it, it, to me, it's kind of like this anthropological experiment gone horribly wrong. You know, it, it, Trelane is he's trying so hard. He, he wants to, you know, go back to Charlie X again. He wants to be liked. Um, and in Trelane's case in particular, he sort of wants to be revered and he wants to be the host of the party. Mm-hmm. Um, he's genuinely curious um, and he's fascinated by everything that he's learning. He's just getting it completely and utterly wrong. And he's sort of the kid who reads the, uh, you know, maybe the book flap, but not the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> he, hasn't, he hasn't really done his homework on it. So it's another example of the sort of wisdom that isn't earned, um, that, that the knowledge here has no value unless he can put it into context and, and turn knowledge into wisdom. Um, so I, I think that it's a cool thing and, and it could be, um, not necessarily a message, but a a parallel to kind of how we here in the modern day treat, um, uh, oh, you know, whether it's war or whatever the topic is, uh, that we sort of get a cursory understanding of something, (laughs) think we get it and then we move on. There's a, you know. How familiar are you with uh, the comedian Eddie Izzard? Oh, absolutely. I'm familiar with him. Yeah. There's, there's a fantastic thing that he says where he, he basically does research the way everyone does research. He he flips channels. <laughs> yeah. And he'll come across a show that's about something. And then he knows about that thing as far as he's concerned. Like, you know, last night I was flipping the channel and uh, and uh, there was a show about sharks. So now I know about sharks. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. If you want to liken it to something else in Star Trek, um, there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a Telosian attitude here, right? Mm-hmm. Watching. He thinks by watching what he's watched, and he's observed Earth from however far away, from however long ago. He thinks by watching what he's watched, now he knows everything. But um, not only is his knowledge sort of limited, you know, as witnessed by his actions, uh, have you tasted the chicken? Yeah, right. Oddly enough, right. this is one of the only things in the universe that doesn't taste like chicken. <laughs> his brandy uh, is not even as good tasting as water. Yeah, he's he's got a cursory understanding of things, but but not the not the depth. Um, yeah, and you could, I mean, if you want to, I'm jumping the gun a tiny bit, but if you want to make that one of the messages, I mean, gaining a full understanding of something before you go tromping around all over it uh, certainly could be uh, could be one of the things that it's encouraging. Let, let's yeah. stick a pin in that and come back to it in the next segment. <laughs> I, I like it. Um, and, it, you know, it, here we have another example, I think, where a very, very Star Trek, where the enemy here isn't evil. 
Trillian is horribly misunderstood and he misunderstands us. You know, we, I should say that we misunderstand him up until the very end of the episode. Then we kind of get it. But he misunderstands us and he doesn't know how to treat or interact us. Um, if Trelane were just a kid on Earth, he would be getting into trouble at school. But then we'd all sort of try to make sure that he doesn't grow up to be a complete and utter sociopath. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He needs guidance. He does. He does. Um, and, and, but speaking of guidance, and maybe you're going to call me an authoritarian again. Usually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, at the end of the day, the adults win. You know, Kirk, by standing up to him and, and just putting him in his place and Trillane's parents by taking him away. And they say right, right out, they say explicitly, we were indulging him too much. Mm-hmm. You know, so again, we we have this sort of adult culture being the thing that we aspire to be, be, being the heroes here, not the the rambunctiousness of youth. See, and I'm not going to fault you on that one. I mean, Mm. usually when when what you do ends up with me making fun of you (laughs) (laughs) is when you sort of seem to go after the counterculture. I mean – there, there are sometimes there have been past episodes of Star Trek where the message seems to be, you know, wear a tie and get a haircut, hippie, mm-hmm. you know. And um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you on the page that says five year olds should not be allowed to run planets. Yeah, for the most, <laughs> so, for the most part, this to me does not seem like an authoritarian uh, thing as much as it's a you know, mom and dad thing. I don't know yeah. that you have to ask your mom for permission to do something when you're thirty, when you're five. Right. You know, it would be sure. good if mom and dad took an interest. Well, and Spock calls it out. He, he says that he objects to, I, I love his line here, intellect without discipline and power without constructive purpose. Boy, that, that just nails it. I thought that was a, a great moment for him. Which again Obvious, is, I mean, but it's, an, it's another theme that we've hit a few times as well. I mean, going back to uh, going back to the Tolosians or going back to... Um, what are little girls made of? There's all of this technology, and rather than understanding it and learning it and figuring out how we can use it, uh, successive generations just keep using it until they really can't even use it anymore. Um, mm-hmm. But they're still wielding it. I mean, it's a it's a it's a gun, and they're not sure how to work the gun nor when it'll go off. But they have no problem pointing it around all over the place. Right. So I mean, the intellect without discipline thing is something we have seen before. I got to say, as a quick aside. Mm-hmm. This is not a moral. This is not a message. This is not a big philosophical thing. Spock has rules about when he uses the word fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he does. And he, he spells it out for Dr. McCoy. He does, yeah. because there's mm-hmm. something that I think I think it's when they can't taste the food and when they can't taste the uh, – well, they can taste it. It just doesn't taste like anything, the food or the, right. or the liquid or whatever. And um, I think I think Bones says to him, I assume this is one of those times when you're going to say fascinating. And uh, Spock says, no, no, fascinating is a word I use for the unexpected. (laughs) And he fully expected the food and water. I mean, once he understands that, you know, the guy's never actually been to Earth, seen Earth, he's not an Earthling. Once he understands that he has no real knowledge of what the things he's been watching actually are, and then Mm -hmm. it's completely expected that the food wouldn't taste like anything and and the brandy wouldn't taste like brandy and the fire doesn't even put out heat. Right. I mean, this is all just image. This is all just show. And so I think he said the most that he could give that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. So now, now we know where the line is drawn. Yeah, I would love. Yeah. I would love to see like the whole list. Yeah, you know, yeah. running from 
fascinating at the top too. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I could find out what you know what 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 elicits that from Spock, that would uh, I feel like that would be a good day. Right. <laughs> right. Hey, I, I want to throw out though. It, it kind of returned to this question about uh, uh, violence and and Shalane's sort of misunderstanding because I, I wonder, and this is a sort of speculation on my part, but I, I wonder because Trelane is so powerful, um, could he ever actually be beaten by? you know, any human, Kirk or, or not, in a fight, because he's doing this physical, like, swords and slapping and punching and all this kind of stuff. Could he actually be beaten? Or if you were to take Trelane and put him into an actual uh, war situation, instead of just him viewing it from hundreds of light years away or wherever he is, um, does he actually stand the risk of dying? Because if his powers are so extensive, then that he he sort of sees all of this happening, but doesn't understand the consequence. Because to him, none of that stuff would actually hurt him. So if he's on a battlefield and and bullets are flying and uh, tearing through his body, well, to a, a being as powerful as Trelane or the race that Trelane comes from, um, maybe that isn't such a big deal. I, maybe this is how they play. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just throwing that out there because we, we had this question about uh, him just being an observer. And I, I, I don't know where he, would, uh, where he would end up if he were put into a real situation. I mean, this is real as anything that Kirk is willing to fight him. Um, but, but I don't think Trelane sees it as any actual consequence to that. Well, again, you're, you're talking about a five-year-old. I mean, I, I, yeah. I have decided he's five. I don't know why. He could be as old as eight. But, I mean, uh, past, mm. eight, past eight, he's an immature eight if yeah, he yeah. is eight. And past eight, then he's no longer a child. He's, uh, he's an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, I don't – the problem with your question, it seems to me – and this is really geeky, but you know, mm-hmm. how oh, do it? We're do on it. A, we're on a Star Trek podcast, yeah. so you, know, you can't be geeky here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it requires his machine, right? Mm-hmm. Not to bring up uh, out of timeline again, but we talked earlier about Q. Q is Q. Q can do what Q wants to do. Q can snap his fingers and make things happen. Yeah, Trelane can do that if there's a machine. When when Kirk breaks the machine that is powering whatever it is that Trelane wants to have happen. Um, Trillian has no power. The the one yeah. power that he has is to disappear into the machine to try to fix it. But even then, I didn't get the sense that he was physically disappearing into the machine. I, I, I felt like he was sort of, you know, ducking behind a curtain to try mm-hmm. to see what was going on. He cannot mm-hmm. keep Spock and Kirk and – I'm sorry. He can't keep Kirk and Sulu and, and everybody who's there there uh, once the machine is done, Right. Yeah, but he can fix that machine very, very quickly, apparently. Well, he can either fix the machine or have the machine fixed very quickly. We don't know what happens. He just goes away. It's not until he fixes the machine, though, that he is then able to bend the Enterprise and everything around it to his will. Well, mostly. He's physically able to make things happen, although certainly that's one of the messages. I mean, I think Kirk, before we see Mom and Dad, Kirk is finally picking up on the fact that Trelane is a child. I mean, he says things to him like, you know, the problem that you're having here is that all of this comes too easy. Yeah. And I mean, he, he, you know, Trelane's got a sword on him. He's got Kirk in a cage and Kirk just walks up and takes the sword and then breaks it. 
<laughs> right. so, I mean, I think right. Kirk is actually picking up on the fact that, you know, this is a, this is a child. Um, as far as whether this is what their race would do, I mean, certainly if, if Trillane were your only indication, you would think that, yeah, this might be what they do. But once mom and dad come and they're like, uh, sorry about him. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. thought, we thought that you could take it. If we had realized that you couldn't, we would have stopped him. We wouldn't have even let him see you or find you. So our bad. I mean, they actually seem like uh, fairly well-meaning individuals, although you've kind of got the same thing that we had with uh, the aliens that took care of Charlie X, of kind of mm-hmm. letting a kid just, you know, letting him run amok, let him go do whatever, not even really paying attention, you know, like one of those parents who hands their kid an iPhone with the password turned off. <laughs> right. And then the kid buys a thousand dollars worth of Smurf berries or whatever, and then yeah. the parents like, "Apple, what the heck?" And you yeah. know, and Apple's like, um, "I'm sorry, am I the child's parent?" Oh no, wait, wait, you are. You're the right, child's right. parent. That's right. <laughs> right. Um, right. You know, they they they, they kind of let him just you know, go a little bit crazy um, mm-hmm. without paying a lot of attention. Thankfully, they do pay attention in time for Kirk not to be killed. At the same time, you kind of wonder if Trelane was ever going to kill Kirk. Because he keeps running right up to it, and then maybe it's yeah. that child. Like, I mean, maybe there is enough understanding in Trelane, not enough understanding to understand that he can't have everything he wants just because he wants it, but enough understanding that really he probably shouldn't kill him. I mean, it's, we're not talking about like you know a salt sucking beast here, right? Yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, I I feel like that that maybe some maybe Trelane feels like he he's saving the kill um, for just the right moment. Mm. Um, but it, to me, it's kind of, it, it's almost like this observer thing again, whether it's watching TV, watching a movie, playing a video game where the death or the violent act doesn't have a consequence. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I don't know that Trelane cares that much or has gotten that far to really figure out that if he kills Kirk, there is no more Kirk. Um Although, because certainly when you're playing a video game, that that doesn't matter. You hit reset and you you go back to the beginning. Yeah, you know, it could. Is Trelane powerful enough that he could kill Kirk, a la uh, when McCoy got killed in yeah. Shore Leave, yeah. and then just fix him up and do it again? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean that's kind of say- what I was getting at with with the question about Trelane being involved in an actual violent situation. Would it not matter to him because he could just sort of repair himself and keep going? And it is just a game, as long as he has his machine. I mean, same, as as, yeah, same yeah. as surely. Actually, it's it's it, wow. Mm. Mm. Whoa, whoa! Is this the child <laughs> of one of the keepers of the Shortleaf planet? <gasps> Maybe. Dun 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 dun. You heard it here first. Yeah, this question will not be answered in this episode. No. <laughs> um, hey, but here's my big, big, big question about this episode. So Trelane's parents show up and they admonish him by saying, of the humans, they have spirit, they're superior. And I'm curious what, what you think they mean on both points. Um, to me, Trelane's people are conscious beings mm-hmm. you know they, they're aware of how things work and they're aware of the differences in in species and creatures and they're aware that um humans or at least everybody who's come there from the enterprise are individuals with uh, with a conscience uh, or consciousness and should not be toyed with mm-hmm. so 
do you think uh, are they making a delineation here between um between their existence and humanity are we back to this thing again where humanity by itself has some defining thing that in star trek here we're saying is spirit and is therefore superior i don't know if i if that those words sat exactly right with me you see you heard them different than i did or differently than i did really yeah because it's not it's not the two parents Well, I mean, they change a little bit as they're talking. Mm -hmm. It's not both parents that say that Trelane is mistreating his pets. It's the mother that says he's mistreating his pets. And then Mm -hmm. the father says that they're superior beings. And then the mother apologizes too and sort of seems to acknowledge that, you know, humans are more than pets. But Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's no conversation between them about that. Not like, well, honey, no, they're not pets because, look, he's wearing clothes. And obviously, (laughs) you know, nobody put them on him. Um, he dressed himself, which makes him <laughs> superior. Um, I, I, the, the sense that I got was that he was saying that they are superior to animals. They're superior to, not to keep referencing it, but since it's one of the only two things we saw, I couldn't identify the second creature that uh, Trelane destroyed. He, yeah, there, cause there he actually killed, no, he killed yeah. two. Yeah. And we don't know what the second one was. But, I mean, this is not like killing the salt vampire or killing the other animal that he killed. Although, really, you know, cruelty to animals, also bad. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, I got the sense, though, that they were saying he was uh, – that uh, humans were superior to animals, that they were superior to unthinking, you know, beasts of the field and, and birds of the air kind of thing. I didn't think that they were saying superior to us. <laughs> See, I, I, somehow, I, I, somehow I got that impression. From hmm. them, of you know, they they have spirit uh, as opposed to a- anything else. I I, I don't know, right. uh, but then uh, well, that's a perfectly good question. Well, where do they draw this line uh, about a conscious being? You know, how how evolved does it have to be before we understand that it's not right to torture it or kill it? You know, well, apparently um, more and more evolved than the thing that imitated Nancy Crater. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. But it, it just seems like we are separating humanity there. And we're saying these creatures recognize that there's something special about humanity. And mm-hmm. Star Trek does that from time to time. It does it a lot, to be quite honest. And I, I don't know, like you saying that, that we're left wanting more, like here's this interesting intelligence, this interesting idea – but we're just going to get out of here and not study it anymore <laughs> because they don't want us around. Um, that seems like a good conversation to have with those parents. Um, well, there's, they, no, there's not going to be uh, anything left on that planet to study, though. That's the thing. I mean, uh, Gothos was a planet that was basically given to Trelane as a playground. So oh, no, once yeah, they exactly, take him yeah. home, there's nobody there to study anyway. Right, right. Yeah. But those creatures, they seem to be able to get around just fine on their own. They could show up on the Enterprise and sit down for sit down for dinner where the food actually tastes good. <laughs> With the squire of Gotho sent to his room, we're left to wonder, did he leave any lessons or morals that we can use today? I don't think we ever decided that this was how this was going to go, but it turns out you've got a part that you play on this show and I've got a part that I play on this show. 
I'm with the kids, and you're with the stodgy old people. <laughs> Turns out there's another one, though. And I was, oh, I'm, there is? I'm kidding about that one. Yeah, you're you're trivia dude. Yeah. And I'm dude who says, so what have we learned on the show today, John? Oh, yeah. It's time yeah. for the questions. And Star for some Wars. reason, it ends up, well, it seems like. And, you know, sometimes we trade off mm-hmm. a little bit. And, you know, people listening may have actually picked up on this before we did. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. we're just the idiots doing it. Right. Um, time to ask the questions, though, starting with uh, the production. Does this episode hold up? Is this still 40 some odd years later or 50 some odd years later, depending on when you're listening to this show? Uh, is this an episode that uh, that actually uh, stands the test of time as far as you're concerned? Start with, um, you know, acting production, the whole, hey, we're making us some TV. I think it is such a blast, this episode. And, and I can see why Trelane is one of those fan favorite iconic characters. Now, mm-hmm. purely from a production standpoint, yeah, you know, the the sets feel like a sound stage. Uh, okay, that's fine. I, I get that. Star Trek will feel like that very often. Um, but I think William Campbell's acting draws me into this episode and he is chewing scenery like crazy and you can tell your fiance that I disagree with her that I, I think even when he is childish Trelane at the very end I, I, I'm still into it I, I really am um, so for that alone for his performance I say it holds up there are minor production things here and there uh, uh, you know a, a cheaper set in one place or another, like the courtroom scene where he's wearing the barrister's wig. And really, we have no room. We just have some lighting and shadows. But it's very dramatic. It's kind of cool in its own right. Um, yeah, would this show be produced differently here some nearly 50 years later? Of course it would. But um, I don't mind. I, I enjoy it the way it is. I got to disagree with you on the courtroom. I thought that was actually one of the most effective scenes that they have because you're not – distracted by any um detail at all i mean it, mm-hmm. it, it again I, i'm doing that thing and you know <laughs> you can find me five dollars later if you want to <laughs> when q just you know sort of comes out of darkness as as like the judge over humanity mm-hmm. in um encounter at far point encounter far point sorry no, everybody okay. gets to bill us five dollars all right good for good good yeah. Um, yeah. The fact that there's nothing in the room but uh, Kirk under a spotlight, Trelane behind the giant desk, the ridiculously oversized desk, and the shadow of the noose hanging behind him. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, that that to me is the best scene imaginable. I'd rather see them spend no money and come up with a really striking way to say what's happening here as opposed as opposed to spending extra money on something that looks exactly like a courtroom but conveys nothing except the fact that they're in the courtroom with very few props with very little set um they convey the fact not only is is Kirk on trial but his life is literally in the balance mm-hmm. so so what you what you see as a weakness uh, in the show I actually see that as one of the, one of the strongest uh, set pieces that they have as far as the rest of it the production yeah i think it i think it it, it is it is um it's Trelane that sells it. Yeah. The, there are other things. I, I, I so wish uh, the more that I watch these more closely, I so wish that Grace Lee Whitney had been able to stay with this show because oh. what we're getting now is Yeoman of the Week and there is no real opportunity for growth. But if you, if you take the Yeoman of the Week out and just keep putting 
Yeoman Rand in there. There is so much potential for growth of that character. Whether you want her to fall in love with Kirk or whether you think that, that is something that they would have eventually worked towards or not, there's just so much room for one more character to grow there in a way that the other mm-hmm. characters don't even necessarily get to grow. Every other character is sort of already established. And even though we learn more about them, you don't see a lot of growth in those characters. The the yeoman is a character or could have been a character had it been one person that could have grown throughout the series and actually, you know, do something like they did with, uh, oh, just, I'm stepping all over the timeline at this point. Cole, <laughs> Cole Meany didn't have a name when he was first on Star Trek, and he ends up being um, Chief O'Brien, right? He ends yeah. up being a well-defined character with, uh, with, uh, with, with a wife and with a kid and with multiple jobs and a real personality and a name that we know. And maybe right, that's right. the difference between you know, television in the 1960s and television much later. I mean, I don't remember if Barnaby Jones had a secretary and if she did, I don't remember her name or what she did or if she changed it all. Um, it makes me a tiny bit sad to keep seeing a different yeoman every week and just, you know, and thinking, wow, if that were still the same person, you might, you might be getting some real character development, you know, as we continue. That is totally looking for something not to like. And that's not even something I didn't like. I thought the yeoman yeah. was fine in this one. It's just while I was watching her interact with Kirk, I'm thinking, man, if, if that was Kirk and Rand, we're, we're getting even more character development than, than you know, a, as we go. See, I, I just think, you know, we've, we've talked about this so much on our show about Rand and, and what happened to that character and what didn't happen with that character. And I feel like if it had always been Rand, then it would have always have been about the tension between Kirk and Rand. But I do agree with you to the extent that it would have been nice to have had another strong female character who was a regular. Well, and and also you know? a character that develops. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. these these yeah. Uh, the the characters on the Enterprise um, really uh, pop onto our TV screens fully formed. Um, yeah, right. just I'm you know screw the timeline, uh, Wesley. <laughs> <laughs> the yeoman could have been Wesley. Honestly, he starts off as like a little wonder kid, but, you know, obviously fairly immature and, and matures over the course of his time on uh, The Next Generation. It's the same kind of thing. It's, yeah, like I say, it's probably the difference between 60s television and, and television from, I'd say, mid 80s on. Yeah. As far yeah. as being able to grow characters and uh, and change them and add to them. Sure. But all that is to say, yeah, this episode's wonderful. It, it definitely stands up as a production, and I can't believe I took that much time to say that. Um, <laughs> what's the message? Is there a message? Are there messages? Hmm. Hey, well, uh, what? War is bad? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that I get that out of it, um, it, it at least with, the, with Trelane representing this idea that war is a game. Mm-hmm. Um um, watch after your kids. Uh, don't let them grow up to be sociopaths. Um, yeah. I think that's pretty apparent here. Um, but again, I, I don't think this is forcing a message on us. It's not necessarily forcing a message at humanity. It's just presenting this as this kind of alien alternate. Um, so I, I don't think we're being hit over the head with a message here. Yeah. Um, th- those are a couple of the minor things that I picked up. What about you? I would agree. I mean, mm-hmm. just like when we watched Charlie X, we decided it was sort of a study. Um, mm-hmm. This is less a study. I mean, it's less cerebral, but but fun and mm-hmm. and not more interesting. 
uh, different interesting, I would say, than Charlie X. But one of the one of the messages that we thought maybe we could pull out of Charlie X was, you know, don't just hand your kids everything and not give them an idea how to manage it or how to yeah. use it or how to value it. Um, certainly, we, we can apply that exact same message here to what's mm-hmm. happening with Trelane. Um, yeah, you know, war is bad. Eh. I mean, I might <laughs> I might go with you a tiny bit, just change it a tiny bit and say it's the glorification of war that's bad. Again, mm-hmm. Spock, the intellect, the, the, the pacifist, you know, as often as he can be on the bridge of the Enterprise, has no problem telling Trelane, you know, dude, if you screw with me, I'll screw back. Yeah. And I'll come at you hard. So, I mean, it's not it's not that they're it's not that they, you know, don't carry phasers. It's not that they're not prepared to defend themselves. Um, it's the glorification of war uh, as embodied by Trelane that that is uh, that is unhealthy. But again, as you say, that's not a hit you over the head message. It's just something that we can, you know, take away from it. Yeah. And, and I would totally agree with with your more nuanced assessment of that for, for sure. Um, yeah. What, what I'm seeing here is, uh, like I said, if I were to draw a modern day parallel, it's this idea of, you know, war as a video game or video games as the sort of uh, outlet for violence. You know, you have to understand that there are real consequences to that. And sometimes it is appropriate. You yeah. have to understand that there are real consequences to real war, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And real violence. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, So does that message hold up or do any of these messages hold up? Yeah, sure. (laughs) No, they do. I mean, pay attention to your kids. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And yeah. And, and, you know, well, not everybody seems to agree with the whole war is not cool thing. For me, for my personal philosophy. Yeah. Mm. If we didn't glorify war, that would be okay. It's okay to revere. I mean, you know, George Washington, uh, father of our country, was also an exceptional general. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can respect that. Mm-hmm. I can respect the tactician part of it. Um, I have less respect for the people or for the, you know, the guys who just, you know, glorify killing and war and guns, you know, maybe to sell movies, maybe to sell records, maybe mm-hmm. to sell an ideal, you know, yeah. or an idea. Um what you're saying is that you have an understanding of the reality in the historical context. We can all respect and revere somebody like George Washington because of what he accomplished. What you're not saying is, "Wow, that looks like fun." Yeah, I mean, well, you know? and, and let's yeah. not make it. Let's not make it about you know the, the George Washingtons or the or the Schwarzkopf's or the Eisenhowers or you know any of the generals we can name. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about the you know the corporal, the private first class. I mean. Yeah. We don't necessarily like the fact necessarily that we have wars. We don't necessarily like the fact that we have to have them. We don't necessarily like the fact that we have to have a military, but we can be appreciative of it. To say that glorifying war is bad is not to say, you know, is not to malign, you know, uh, military or or to malign the people who have served in those. Take it back to Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam vets came home and they were hated. They were called baby killers. They were spat upon by some people. And what they did for the most part, was what they were drafted to do. Yeah, very right. few people signed up for Vietnam because they thought that'll be awesome. Right. Uh, very few people, um, compared to the number of people that were actually sent and fought and, you know, got injured or got killed in some, in, in certainly far too many cases. People who have to do that, obviously, should not be, should not be scorned. 
because whether you agree with the reasons they do it, they end up doing it because, you know, I mean, they, I don't mean to sound all jingoistic. They end up doing it for us at the same time. I'm not cool with G.I. Joe. I'm not cool with toys. I'm not cool with, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not cool with the glorification of war. Understanding that it's necessary is one thing. Um, selling it as a fun romp, you know, across foreign lands, uh, not not nearly as cool. Yeah. Well, and I think that's what we get in this episode is that, you know, the the evolved humans here very much have that understanding, whereas the immature child that is Trelane doesn't get it at all. So does that message hold up? Sure. Um, and then uh, how about, uh, well, obeying your parents and not torturing your schoolmates? I think that holds up, too. <laughs> and no torturing animals for the love of... And, no, and by the please. way, check to make sure that the thing you're about to kill isn't the last one in the galaxy. Yes. I mean, yes. can we, can we yeah. just... Oh, the poor salt-sucking vampire things. Hey, yeah. those are the messages that we found. But, of course, we do want to know if you found those messages or did you find others? Did you spend your younger days disobeying your parents and torturing your schoolmates? Oh, God, please tell me you didn't torture animals. Don't write us about that. But everything else, <laughs> let us know what you thought. Missionlog at Roddenberry.com is the email address. Missionlog at Roddenberry.com or on Twitter at MissionLogPod is the way to follow us. Send us a message in 140 characters or less, and we will try to do the same back to you. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash missionlogpod, and you can give us a call, uh, 323-522-5641. We may, in fact, use your feedback for something at some point. Cool. Hey, Ken, you know what? I'm not doing anything next week. I was thinking about heading out to the desert to fight a giant lizard man in a battle to the death. Are you with me? Well, I was hoping you were going to say Burning Man, but yeah, I guess I'll do this. Cool. Next week, we will see you in the arena. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. And now, if you'll excuse me, I'm heading to Vasquez Coliseum, I want to get a good seat for next week's fight. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.